What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Creating Madness. I'm here with my good friend and co-host, Ethan Carboni, as well as sports analyst and college basketball extraordinaire, Mike DeCourcy. Ethan, how are you doing today? I'm great. And Mike, how are you doing? Doing very well, gentlemen. How are you? I'm doing good. I think Ethan's doing even better. We got a great interview coming up. But before we get into it, let's quickly shout out our social media. Ethan, what's happening on our Twitter and Instagram? At ATR Madness is our Twitter at underscore creating madness is the Instagram. For that, we will be posting and tagging Mike on his socials. Mike, what are yours? So that all the people can follow you as well. Yeah, I'm at TSN Mike on Twitter and uh, Mike DeCourcy on at by Mike DeCourcy, Mike DeCourcy on Facebook. Uh, you can find me. I have a page there. But most uh, honestly, most of the social that I do goes through Twitter. All right. Sounds good. Well, without further ado, Ethan, you cool if I kick it off with the first question? Go right ahead. All right. Sounds good. So, uh, Mike, for the fans that don't know, simple question to start off. When and how did you get your start in college basketball writing? Well, uh, that's, uh, you know, it's something that I grew up uh, as a massive sports fan and knew at a very early age, honestly, I, t- I trace it back to fourth grade when uh, I don't know if they still do this, guys, but we used to be able to order little paperback books through a scholastic something or whether they, they, they came in with you'd get this little flyer and you could order the, these books. And, and I ordered one in one like fall of fourth grade called Greatest Pro Quarterbacks. And I read that book and I knew I wanted to be involved in something like that, something like composing that book or, uh, or being around it. And I knew all along that that's what I wanted to do. So I went through high school. Uh, I was on the, I was the sports center, the newspaper and that, all that sort of thing. And, and I got a scholarship to go to Point Park University in downtown Pittsburgh, where I majored in journalism and communications. And all, all the while, all that's happening, I'm watching my brother play. My brother was two years younger than me. My brother, Pat, he played you know, junior high, high school, and he played uh, three years of NAIA uh, basketball at uh, La Roche University, which is also in the Pittsburgh area. And so I got to see his whole career, and I really fell in love with the game. Between watching my brother play uh, and going to the Dapper Dan Round Ball Classic, which sort of was the pre- precursor. It was not sort of. It was the precursor of the McDonald's All-American game. It, it, there was a Dapper Dan more than a decade before there was a McDonald's game. And that was run by Sonny Vaccaro. He happened to be a Pittsburgher like me, so it was in Pittsburgh. And I went to that starting in 1976 and saw so many great basketball players go through there. Isaiah Thomas and James Worthy, uh, Patrick Ewing, so many others went and played in that game before they went on to college and professional stardom. And that got me just really wanting to be in the game of basketball. And I, I, on the way, uh, when I got to the Pittsburgh press, I think my, my bosses sensed that that's where I wanted to end up. So they held that out from me. They let me do college football. They let me do a boxing. I did a ton of boxing, a ridiculous amount of boxing. And they held out college basketball until they were, until they felt that I was doing a good enough job on the other stuff. They weren't going to give me what I wanted until I earned it. And ultimately, after I'd been there for four years, 
they gave me the opportunity to cover Duquesne and that's where it began. That's a really cool story. Going all the way from watching your brother's NAI games to covering the highest level college basketball. It's pretty sick. Uh, Ethan, you have the next question? Yeah. Mike, you mentioned that you were able to watch the James Worthy, the Isaiah Thomas, and you got to see them playing that pretty much high school All-American at the time. And over your time as a journalist and college basketball fan, how much would you say the recruiting process has changed from back then to now where were you? social media be the biggest part of advertising oneself as a player it's it, it really has changed it's almost as if it's all in the recruiting sense it's like two different sports like back then it was you know badminton and now it's uh it's uh rafael nadal playing tennis kind of and i don't and i don't mean that necessarily it was easier because if you ever seen a high level game of badminton <laughs> it's pretty wicked uh but it's just completely different Although you've got the same implements in some ways, a net, a racket, et cetera, it's completely different. And I'm, for instance, when I was going to those Dapper Dan games uh, that back in, and they were in April of the player's senior year, uh, those athletes would often not be committed yet. And that would be a place that coaches would go because they were trying to get the job done or maybe even trying to find a player. Uh, there was a, there was a, early story there was a guy named Les Kaysen who had like 200 scholarship offers and then they saw him at the Dapper Dan game and he lost almost all of them because it, it, now you know in in today's basketball he'd have been signed when he you know early in his senior year at whatever school he chose uh and and that so that wouldn't have the same influence but he also would have played in AAU tournament after AAU tournament etc and maybe he would have gotten better because he played against that level of competition earlier and knew he needed to get better. Uh, or maybe he would have been found out and never have gotten to that level of scholarship offer. But those are the things that are different now. Players are playing against high-level competition much earlier now. Uh, they're being exposed to recruiting interest much earlier now. They're getting into that pressurized environment earlier now. Uh, and in, in some ways, uh, they're growing up earlier now because they're finding out about their value uh, financially. I mean, LeBron James knew when he was a high school junior for sure that he was worth millions, millions. I mean, no, I don't think he knew when he was a high school junior that he would sign a $100 million contract with Nike coming out of high school, but I, he knew he was worth millions. And so, and that's 20 years before now, when it's even more advanced with the, you know, when, when LeBron was in high school, the AAU, uh, whatever you want to call summer basketball, was not as advanced as it is now. It was still just, you know, kind of early formative. And now it's, it, it, there's, there are tournaments in April, there are tournaments in May, there are tournaments in July, and it's, you know, it's all over the country. So it has dramatically changed. I'm not going to say for the better or for the worse, uh, but it's like I said, it's just like two different sports. And what it offers that was the part that kind of got me. That's you can't really find that now. You can't find a kid with 200 offers unless he does something illegally gets that taken away. That's that does sound like a completely different ballgame. Ethan, you have a follow though, right? Yeah, so with that being said, the 200 offers thing, what do you say having that many offers is a replicant of? 
and not having as good as relationships or being forced into making these relationships with these players and their families, as opposed to now where it seems like the coaches know the families almost down to every single member extremely well while they're recruiting these players and even more so once the player signs with the team. Well, I think the volume of offers thing back then was a product of not being able to see the players and, and evaluate in the same way and not knowing uh, whether that player suited you or not. Uh, and the player maybe not knowing as well. Uh, and I, so I think that's the difference. I, I, I think it's become much more efficient. Uh, you, you like I, when I was when LeBron was a rising sophomore, so he played in ninth grade, won a state championship. I'd never heard his name, even though I lived in the state of Ohio at that point. I lived in Cincinnati, but I had family in Pittsburgh. As I mentioned, I grew up, you know, in Pittsburgh. Uh, and so uh, my wife and I went back uh, one day in July, one weekend in July. Um, she went to go shopping with her sister and her niece. And I sneaked out to Five Star uh, at, at Robert Morris University. And Five Star then was su uh, such a great deal for young players. It, rather than playing tournaments, they'd go to a camp and, uh, and really learn skills more than necessarily they do now uh, in, the, in the summer period. They compete more now than they did then. So they go. To, so I go to this camp and there's this scout, legendary scout named Tom Konchowski, the greatest high school basketball scout ever. And I know I've known him for years. And so I go up and stand next to him watching one of the games. And he said, what are you doing tonight? And I said, well, I'm having dinner with my wife. And he said, no, man, you got to stay. There's this kid named LeBron James you got to see. Well, I mean, but in, in today's basketball, I would have known who he was. And it wouldn't have been this secret that Tom was letting me in on. It, it would have been very well known because we have social media and a player with LeBron's surpassing ability. I, I, when I saw LeBron, I didn't get a chance to see him that night because he wasn't playing in the day and he was playing that night. So I had to go to dinner with my wife. I wasn't risking divorce to see LeBron. Uh, so I didn't see him till the following summer when he's a rising junior. Uh, and now he's won two state championships in Ohio. And I obviously I'm aware of him because of, because of Tom. And, and I wrote about him. I knew immediately. I watched him go up and down the court twice. And I'm like, this is the best basketball player I've ever seen. And, and I, and I wasn't exaggerating. I mean, and I'd seen every, I hadn't seen Michael as a high schooler. Uh, I didn't see magic as a high schooler, but other than those two, I'd seen every other great player as a high schooler uh, from my era, uh, which is mid seventies on. And so I see him. And so then after the game, I wrote that it was like seeing like my, my older sister seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. That's what it was like. Cause I knew that this guy was going to revolutionize the game that I love. And I got, reamed out on by a, by an Akron columnist for overhyping him. That's, you know, that's the, it's a different world now because wow. now, you know, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have gotten ripped like that now because 75 people probably would have written the same thing before me. Maybe just not as elegantly as I would have. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's yeah. Now you're talking, you made the badminton tennis comparison that may sound like swimming in tennis, man. That's, that's ridiculous. And to think now, Mike, everyone in college basketball, or at least in high school basketball media, has known who Mikey Williams was since he was, what, 12? And now we've got – now we're talking about LeBron not being truly discovered until he was 17. It's a, 20 years can make a large difference. Yeah. It, it, you know, and I, it, like, like I said, it, it, 
he was well known. He was a he was a name after, especially if you want after he won the second state championship. I mean, he was a name, and and everybody was looking forward to that week at ABCD camp in New Jersey because it was really a chance for people to see him against high level competition, and 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 so that was a that was a display for him. But in today's game. I, I can tell you right now, he probably would not have stayed four years at Akron, St. Vincent, St. Mary's. He probably would have gone to Montverde or Oak Hill or uh, or IMG or somewhere like that. Uh, and everybody was seen him in the Dicks tournament during the, during his sophomore year Final Four. Uh, that's what everybody would have seen him by the time I we all saw him at ABCD camp. It's just a different atmosphere now for young prospects. I, I don't know that it's been conducive. To developing the best players because we're not producing. I mean, we, you know, we'd have some, you know, we, we went from a Michael in the early eighties. I think he was class of 81 uh, to, you know, before that we had magic, which was class of 77. Uh, subsequent to that, we had uh, Patrick Ewing, which was, I think he was class. I think he was, uh, he was also class of 81 with Mike. Um, so we were pro- producing really special players at a much regular rate than we are now. So I don't know that this circumstance is as good for the player. I think it's great for the breadth of the class, the group. I think you're seeing more really good players now. But I think that special talent, I think it's good. It's like James Wiseman should be fabulous. I just don't think there's any excuse for him not being fabulous. But I think that because he was special he got away with some of the things that you you know that don't make you great. Constant work on your game, constant competing to try to be better. He took off, after the NCAA mishandled his his eligibility. He takes off the rest of his freshman year, doesn't compete against anybody, doesn't get any better. You don't get better if you're not playing. And where is he now? He should be the Warriors' starting center. Where is he? That's a that's a very valuable point. It's a very valuable point. Uh, well, I have a question that's staying obviously on top of college basketball, but a little different from what we were talking about. Uh, you're renowned as a pretty high level bracketologist in the field. We got a PhD in the subject. Um, Ethan and I were curious when we were, you know, coming up with the prep for this, what your best bracket you've had is to your memory, or what's the closest you've had to a perfect bracket? Because there's probably something in the works that you've had over your career that's been pretty, pretty sick to look at. So, what do you have an idea of what your closest bracket to greatness is? Well, first of all, let me clarify that I understand that James Wiseman is not healthy, but yes, okay, yeah, 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 of course. Well, just so, just so it's it's clear, I understand he's not healthy, but um, it, it's it's he's still not there, uh, and I don't mean this, I don't mean present. I mean he's not there where his game should be. Um, in terms of perfect bracket, uh, honestly, my primary job relative to the bracket is that I now predict the bracket, the, the, the uh, composition of the bracket for Fox sports. So this past year was my third year doing it. And my second, when the actual bracket was followed by a tournament, because my first year doing it was 2020. Uh, and we did not have one an NCAA tournament. So, uh, I can always say that I had them all right. Uh, but, uh, in, in terms of uh, actually predicting the bracket this past year, uh, I had the highest score uh, on of all media brackets of all the prompt you know, the uh, widely distributed media brackets. 
Joe, Joe Lenari, Jerry Palm, etc. I had the highest score. And of the 211 published brackets on the internet that are gathered by the bracket matrix, I had the 10th best. So that's, you know, that's my, that, I, I look at that as more important than what comes after necessarily. Uh, it, it's really hard to get the, uh, to get the next bracket right, especially in today's day, because one, I don't get a lot of time to do it. Uh, my, my, uh, employer wants it pretty quickly so it can get out on the internet because people want to read it. So I never feel quite as good about it as I'd like to. Uh, but in, I will say that in 2018, I did have the final game. I had Michigan against Villanova in the final four and had Villanova winning. So, uh, recently of, in my memory, uh, although I take, you know, I take more delight in the Fox prediction, uh, of, uh, of getting, you know, the top 10 score on the bracket matrix, um, getting the final in 2018 was pretty good. No, both are impressive, but, uh, you know, it, it's a growing, I guess, I'm not saying it's a growing niche, I guess, in college basketball to predict the bracket. And, you know, with the amount of people that are pre- trying to predict brackets every year, you finishing at numero uno is, is pretty impressive, I just had to say. Well, thank you. Ethan, you got a question? Yeah, and kind of going back towards college basketball as a whole, with NIL coming out, and then the new regulations coming out, how do you see NIL affecting college basketball and its landscape in the long term, let's just say five to 10 years, because I know no one can even per- come close to predicting what would happen in 50. <laughs> five or 10 is tough, guys. Five, five, uh, with the way things have changed. Uh, I, could, I would not have uh, expected that five years ago that we would have name, image, and likeness collectives. Uh, uh, and, and the announcement, as we saw, uh, with Nigel Pack going to Miami of a two-year, $800,000 contract for his name, image, and likeness. I would not have seen that five years ago. So projecting out into the future in five years is really tough. You know, my hope is, first of all, I think everybody needs to chill the heck out. Uh, I'll, I'll clean that up uh, for, a, <laughs> for a podcast. Chill the heck out. Uh, yeah, things are changing fast, and it's hard right now. Uh, but you know what? When when uh, when I started uh, doing journalism on the internet, and deadline was not, oh yeah, we'll get it, you know, eleven o'clock, and then we'll pu- we'll edit it and we'll put it in the paper, and everybody will see it tomorrow morning. But finish it, and it's it's on the internet in twenty minutes or fifteen or whatever. I had to change. I mean, things change. That's the way the world works. So yeah, I think Mike Bray uh, at the ACC meeting said something similar. Uh, to, to that whole concept, it, it, things change, you deal with it and you adjust. And it, this is the way college recruiting is going to be, at least for the time being, because I don't think the NCAA has the power to make significant enforcement decisions on this subject. I don't think that they can get away with it legally. And I don't think that they want to court any more legal issues than they've already got. And then they've been beaten badly at the Supreme Court level. The Supreme Court justices uh, you know, basically said, bring another, bring another suit into this court and you are going to get spiked like you've never been spiked. Uh, so I think they realize now that although they did send out that memo earlier this week that said 
that you know they're watching and they'll investigate and all that. I think they're just trying to get people to maybe calm down and, and make sure that if they continue to do this stuff, they do it in a way that isn't problematic uh, from a from a optical standpoint. I think that releasing that uh, NIL deal all but simultaneously with Nigel Pack's commitment to Miami. I can't remember whether it came before or after, but it was it was almost simultaneous. I think that optics of that weren't great, at least for certain people in college athletics. For a lot of people, it's just like, okay, we're, this is where we're going. And for others, it was, oh, that's bad. That's not the way we do things. So I think they want, I think the NCAA wants teams not to do that. Not necessarily not sign that Nigel Pack to a two-year deal or whatever, uh, but I don't think they want it to happen in the way that it did. Uh, so I, I, I don't. I know that athletes five years from now will be getting significant money for their name, image, and likeness. I don't know what form that will take. I know that the NCAA members don't want it to become an employer-employee relationship. That creates all kinds of problems for them. Not, not really even so much with the men's and uh, the men's and women's basketball teams and the few other and the football team and the few other uh, women's sports that would be elevated in order to get some gender equity, but for the entire athletic department, which might shrink uh, if they went employer employee, uh, they might say, we can't pull off uh, employer employee with a baseball team that doesn't make any money or a soccer team that doesn't make any money or whatever sport you want to name. So I think that they'd like to avoid that if they can, but they're going to have to make a choice. The, the kind of predictability that they want will only come one of two ways. If the Congress gives them some sort of uh, name, image, and likeness legislation that makes them more or less exempt from antitrust, or two, they go employer-employee and negotiate these things. Uh, so that you can do this, you can't do that, et cetera. Those are the only two ways. It can't come from the NCAA sending out memos or sending out investigators. That's not going to work. And you've just given the exact same answer that I, I thought you'd probably have more of a open set of knowledge, but it really seems like no one knows what's going to happen. And you can't know because the variables, as I said, Employer employee is a variable. Will it happen? As I said, I know they don't want it. I know it's hard to organize because the athletes are transitory. They're only there four or five years. It's hard to get the, the critical mass to make that happen when athletes are in, out, in, out, in, out. Uh, that's hard to have happen. And, the, and I know that most schools don't want it. But I also know that some schools will want it uh, because they don't like the the unpredictability of the current circumstance. I, I, but I think when it's presented to them, okay, you can have predictability and that means that they're your employees. They'll have to say, Hmm. And I think we'll stick with the unpredictability. For sure. And just one quick final question is, I know you're going to have to go right after this. Looking back to when you were a kid, you love sports. And eventually you figured out that you want to go into sports media. If you could give one piece of advice to anyone that wants to go into what you do or sports media as a whole, what would you give them? Yeah, I'd, I'd give two. Um, first of all, start as early as you can. So 
like if that means your junior high or your middle school has a paper, do it then. If your high school, you don't have to, but I mean, if they do, do it, right? Um, but I, if when I get this question, sometimes very rarely I'll get a call from a college senior, and and, and I'll and they'll say they want to get into this, and I'll say, okay, well, what have you done for the last four years? Well, I went to class and got a degree, and 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 a lot of times it's not even in this field. And I'm like, okay, so here's what you do. Build a time machine, go back to high school, start writing, start, you know, whatever, start working in your student media. That's really when you need to start. If you don't start then, okay, you're a little behind when you get to college. But even then, like college has student radio stations, sometimes student TV stations, student newspapers, do those things. That, that They're a wonderful experience. I taught myself how to be a sports writer basically by, during my college years. I, it, I didn't take a lot of classes in writing when I was in college. I figured that the experience that I could get in student media and more so I was working at a small teeny weeny 5,000 circulation paper uh, and writing up high school games. Um, you don't even need now the paper to do those things. You can go to the games and do it yourself and have a blog or whatever and learn how to do it that way, but still be doing it. So that's the first piece of advice is start in media as early as you can, even if that means doing your own blog, um, do it. And secondly, when, you're, when, you're, when you get to the college level, do two things, learn how to write and learn how to talk. Because unless you are someone like Frank DeFord or Wright Thompson uh, or Nick Hornby sitting on my shelf, my bookshelf, you're going to have to do more than just write. And unless you are Tim Brando or Al Michaels or uh, someone like that, you're going to have to do more than just, you know, call games. I mean, so you're going to have to be able to do all of it. People, someone's going to ask you if you're a writer to go on television or to go on radio or to go like for your newspaper might have like a, like a, 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 live hit or something like that. A lot of the papers did that for a while. Maybe some are still doing it, but all of those things play into it. You, you're, you're going to have to go across the media. Uh, and there's no, unless you are absolutely the elite of the elite, there's no specialization now, unless you don't want to be really successful. I mean, if you just want to go and, and not be at a, you know, at a, at a high level and you just want to do one or the other, you can do one or the other, but you're not going to climb very far. Uh, being My being able to, to be on Big Ten Network was dependent on me going, you know, going through the years prior to that and being comfortable on camera and being comfortable uh, give, sharing my thoughts. Uh, the, the, that goes through years of doing radio interviews, uh, uh, doing a little dabbling a little bit in some TV uh, panel stuff and then eventually getting that spot it took me 30 years to get there, but it started with my college radio station. Uh, so those two things start as early as you can in, in media and learn and do both learn how to write and learn how to talk. And when I say that, I mean, uh, when I say learn how to write, you know, grammar, uh, style uh, and factual reporting and speaking uh, clear, concise. I'm not the best at concise, uh, and 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 being interesting on camera and and or just on you know orally on on radio. 
that all sounds great. I know we'll be taking some advice from that statement. Hopefully all the younger generation of college basketball and us will be taking advice from that statement. But thank you so much for uh, coming on the show, Mike. We had a blast talking with you about everything college basketball. Um, again, if you liked what you saw from Mike, make sure you follow him on Twitter at TSN Mike. That's where he does a lot of stuff on socials. If you liked what you saw from us, make sure you follow us on Twitter at ATR Madness. And if you liked what you saw us even more, go follow us on Instagram at underscore creating madness. That's all from us. Ethan, do you have anything else to say? No, thank you, Mike, for joining. All right. Oh, it was my pleasure. Uh, you guys, uh, uh, you guys are, are following my advice. Uh, uh, so keep up the great work. Uh, and uh, maybe you'll have my job in five years. Hopefully, man. <laughs> all right. Well, see you guys in the next episode and have a great rest of your day.